0: I want you to imagine with me for a moment a child in a kitchen where there is a very hot stove. Mom is working and others are in the kitchen helping and they say to the child, don't touch the stove, it's too hot, it'll burn you. Now it might be that the child would stumble and fall into the stove or something might happen that accidentally would occur. But the child, hopefully, is old enough to understand that they are not to just go up and touch the stove. They've been warned, and that warning they must heed. In the same way, the Ten Commandments speak to us about God's care for His people. And sometimes in the course of His providence, we become hurt, surprised, even injured. But morally speaking, he has given us ample warning to say, do this and don't do that. In fact, he's covered everything for us in these Ten Commandments. There isn't a single moral obligation that you and I have or could have that isn't covered here. And We're now coming this week to number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. And as we do, we recognize that these are warnings three things that none of us want to say is, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Or, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Or, I wish someone had warned me. These are our warnings. Anything along these lines we should see coming. Anything along these lines that might have seemed like a good idea at the time, we should have reconsidered because we've been warned. And this week we turn to the seventh commandment. All of them coming under the same heading of submission. God says, what will I do? God warns, God protects, God sets forth his truth. Well, how will I respond? Will I submit to it? And will I honor my parents? Will I, will I submit to it and keep the Sabbath day holy? Will I submit to it and not take his name in vain? Will I submit to it and not commit adultery? And it's to that that we turn this morning. Let us pray. Oh Lord, in this world we are told many things by others and by our culture. And in so doing we hear a lot of bad advice Help us to hearken to and cling to and desire your truth. Help us to hold it close to ourselves and to let it form our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some of the things I say today are very basic. Some of them are merely introductory. We will not be able to cover the entire subject. But let's begin with one simple statement. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not something that Adam and Eve thought of or that subsequent cultures have devised, although subsequent cultures have devised marriages, usually along perverted lines. Marriage itself didn't come from the 4th century or from Northern Europe or from the early days of America. The concept and institution of marriage came from Him, It is not good for the man to be alone, he says, in the light of Adam's creation, and so he creates a helper suitable for him, he creates Eve, and they come together and they become one flesh, man and woman, before the Lord in what comes to be called throughout the Scriptures, marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman, not between one man and many women, or one woman and many men in matriarchal cultures or as we see today, between people of the same sex. He set it up, he organized it, he gave it to us as a gift, and he therefore reserves the right to regulate it, to say how it may be used, to to see how it may be employed. And so in many places in the Scriptures, not least of which in Matthew 5, we read these words. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he's beginning to regulate it, this marriage thing. And he says that there's an act that can occur between a man and woman who are not married, particularly in the case of someone being married to someone else, and it is called adultery. I know it well, says the Lord, because I've been treated adulterously my whole life. Ever since the people of Israel have become my people, ever since I entered into the covenant, they have run off against, with other women, other, other tribes, other gods, and they have falsely treated me. I know what adultery is because I have been the victim of it myself many, many, many times, in fact, continuing to this day. It is the taking of another man's wife, another woman's husband, in sexual relations, outside of marriage. And, Jesus says, not just that, but he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and by implication, any woman who looks lustfully at a man, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As you see in the outline, pages 10 and 11, what is Jesus teaching? Let me say it very clearly and directly. It is wrong to satisfy the adult the impulse to participate in the sex act outside the bounds of the marriage covenant. That's wrong. That's warning. If you go ahead and do it and your life falls apart, you can't say, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. You can't say, Nobody told me, because he's saying it very clearly. It is wrong to satisfy the impulse to participate in the sex act outside the bounds of marriage. Now, do we agree with that? Not in the moment. Because in the moment, Christians and our culture both are pretty guilty of adultery. Who knows the numbers? But we see the wreckage. Secondly, as he says in Matthew, it is wrong to lust after someone who is not your spouse. The violation of this seventh commandment is registered, first of all, in the inclinations and emotions of the uncontrolled heart. Like murder, lust is a sin long before it leads to any improper actions. And even if it never results in sexual acts outside of marriage, you may have lustful thoughts and never carry them to conclusion. Nevertheless, that's adultery. So the one who gave us marriage now regulates it in two big ways. Not the act, don't engage in the act, and don't even allow your heart to be inclined in that area. Well, you say, I'm just admiring a beautiful man, a beautiful woman. Yes, you are. Don't do that. It leads to bad things. Well, it's harmless, you say. I just had a thought. I just had an idea. I just sort of had a daydream and a a little inclination of thinking. I didn't act on it. I didn't do anything. I didn't step out of bounds. Jesus says, if you would keep the seventh commandment, do not lust after a woman. Look at a woman lustfully. Because if you do, you've already broken the commandment. Who does it hurt? You. It is corrosive and distorting in the extreme, and you know that I'm right. I'm not right. He's right. You know that such inclinations are very harmful because you've had them, and you've you've wondered, shall I resist or shall I give in? This, of course, is at the base of the problem of pornography, which is huge and epidemic. We talk about the influence of the opioid drugs, and certainly they are growing, and alarmingly so, but already in our midst is the problem of pornography. And just this week I heard of another marriage crashing and burning because of it. It's a terrible thing, but I haven't done anything. Jesus said the seventh commandment, Is to be kept in terms not only of the act, which is important, but also of the lustful look. What is Jesus not teaching? He's not teaching that sexual desire is always wrong. This is a distortion sometimes coming from even some good church fathers. Tertullian and Augustine both went in the direction of saying that sex itself is wrong, they went too far. That's not what the Bible says. The sexual desire, he doesn't say that sexual desire is always wrong. It is not wrong to satisfy sexual desires in the way that God has ordained within the covenant of marriage. He doesn't say that. He encourages it. Next week we'll look a little bit more deeply at that side of things. So people say, How should I respond? I'm not married. What do I do? How should I view these things? How should I view marriage when I'm not married? I know that within marriage I have to behave a certain way, but what about if I'm not married? And of course, the the great phrase of abstinence has come into our culture. Jesus teaches that not not all of us are able to refrain from marriage, but it is a gift. That is, those who have been given the gift of continence and celibacy— I want you to see marriage less through cultural eyes and more through biblical eyes as a result of this sermon and next week. You may feel peer pressure to be married. That's not the same thing as a divine call to be married. We must make a distinction. Marriage is a calling. You are called out of singleness into a married estate. Not everyone receives that calling. And so, pressure ought not to be put upon those who are single to be married, not even by their loving parents. Marriage is a calling, and not all are called to it. Jesus emphasizes this in his, in his teaching in Matthew 19. So, if you turn with me there to Matthew 19, we read these words in verses 8 through 12. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is on the subject of divorce, and that's not our subject this morning. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. The disciples said to him, Then if this is the situation between a husband and wife, that is, that there may be divorces and all, is it, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it has been given. That is, the teaching of the value of the sinful life. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is a complicated section. Let me try to simplify it this way. Jesus is talking about abstinence and where abstinence comes from. Abstinence comes from the lack of a call to marriage. There is no sex outside of marriage in the the biblical view. So if you're not called to be married, then you're not called to be sexually active. It's just that simple. If you are called to be married, then sexual activity is, is endorsed and encouraged. But for those who aren't, they should not feel less in fact, we'll see in some ways they should feel more. But in our families and in our culture, a certain pressure, peer pressure has come upon people to, her, to be married the sooner the better, satisfy mom and dad. I've got one unmarried daughter. I know what that feels like. I'd like her not to be dependent on me in any way. That's me talking. That's selfish. Please, please don't tell her when she visits. But there are some who are not called to marriage. And the reason they're not called to marriage is not because uh, of anything except God's intervention in their life. He has done something to them. He he has given them singleness. And singleness is a good thing because God gives us only good gifts. There are some who have been born that way. That is, perhaps, uh, again, this may infer that they are not able to to bear children or to enter into sexual relations. There are those who are in circumstances imposed by others, for example, those who are in prison, and there are those who choose to be celibate for the sake of God's kingdom. All three are legitimate. So God says, I regulate marriage, and one of my regulations is that not everybody has to be married in order to be happy, in order to have my favor rest upon them. Any more than anyone has to have, everyone has to have children who are married. God gives children as a gift. God gives spouses as a gift. And if he doesn't give that to us, then we are still okay. It's his choice. It's his actions. But abstinence, as I say, is the only biblically moral option for those who are unmarried. Well, I have many opportunities That doesn't make it right. He who gave us marriage as a gift regulates it and says, unless you are married, sexual relations are off the table. Now, of course, many people don't listen. And they find out that the stove is hot. Mom and Dad said, don't touch the stove or you will be burned. Well, let's see. We're right. But now I've got a scar. I've got a medical situation. I've got other consequences because I wouldn't listen. How many times did Jesus say, he who has ears, let him hear? He is warning us. This is how I have constructed things. I know you're going to have your own ideas. That's why I'm giving you warnings. That's why I'm giving you commandments. That's why I'm telling you because I love you don't do it Now of course this didn't end it we come see controversies in the rest of the New Testament as well from time to time and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul has to take up this matter of marriage in a complicated situation at Corinth They wrote him some and wrote him some asked him some questions about it it was so vexing and disturbing And the context of this is that Corinth didn't know any more about biblical marriage than our country does. It was a messed up society. It was a society very, very perverted in its actions and decisions. And so these new Christians are living in this Corinthian city. They're seeing all kinds of things around them, and they're wondering how to sort it out. This is part of Paul's response. Now, verse 1, for the matters that you wrote about It is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. That means sex is good. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife and do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another that. So in my third point today, I try to summarize again, what I've said, verse 1, our first point. Marriage is a specific calling by God and is not for everyone without exception. Celibacy is also a calling and a gifting worthy of God, worthy of, by God, worthy of respect. That's verse 1. It is good for a person not to marry. Singleness is a noble calling. It's not something less. It's not something cheap. It's something full full and, and enriching. Even if it's only for a season in your life, enjoy that singleness, period. It's not meant as a punishment, though your friends may be married. It is meant as a time that you might redeem for God's kingdom as we shall see. But the marital institutions clearly implied here, as stated explicitly in Genesis 2, is that it's between a man and his wife. Not a man and his boyfriend, or a woman and her girlfriend. A man and his wife. Not a man and his girlfriend, or a woman and her boyfriend. But a man and wife. Since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. That's the the implication there, is marriage. Marriage is the foundation of the sexual reunion. Marriage is one is, is a key part of it for the purposes of creation, of procreation, and proper re- regulation of sexual impulses. These impulses are not sinful in themselves, and marriage is God's provision for the satisfaction of these impulses. I didn't read verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried. Again, repetition, as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should engage in adulterous relationships. No. They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he recognizes here and elsewhere that the sexual impulse is a part of the motivation for people to be married. He gave us those impulses. He regulates them. Paul, number three, expresses a desire that all believers should be free of the distracting cares of the marriage state in order that they might, without hindrance, devote their energies and talents to the defense and promotion of God's kingdom. That's easier done when you're single. Look at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern, says Paul. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So singleness is not a restriction. I'm repeating myself because it's so often the other thing is either implied or said. Singleness is not a restriction. Singleness is a glory. Not all are called to singleness, but not all are called to marriage. And there should be mutual respect among those who are married and unmarried and mutual elevation of the importance of both. We haven't even mentioned widowhood or senior sort of singleness. That's a different that's the same thing, really. It's a different stage of life, but it's the same thing. If one is called to singleness, then you are more free to devote yourself to the work and labors of the Lord and His kingdom. How wonderful is that? Finding number four, marriage has other purposes than simply satisfying sexual impulses, and these are always to be in view when the sexual instinct is given its full place of honor. Within the bounds of marriage, there are many good things that come, there's an answer to our loneliness. There's a division of labor where we can get assistance just as Adam assisted Eve, Eve assisted Adam, so our wives assist our husbands and vice versa. There is the matter of procreation. There is the matter of regulating sexual impulses. There is the matter of prayer and spiritual devotion, building one another up in the Lord. A lot of good reasons for the marriage estate. And they're all by God. They're all his reasons, and they've been given to us to help us. But the devil, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians 7, will tempt us to divide over this issue and to divide between husband and wife because of pornography, because of lustful uh, inclinations, and because of the adulterous act. Be warned, says the Lord, the stove is hot. You don't want to touch it. It will burn you. It will hurt you. So to summarize, as I said in the beginning, marriage is God's idea. Now, people people can be married without being Christians. True. But for the Christian, marriage is God's idea, and as, as such, it is regulated by Him with an application to every generation and culture. This is another mistake that's often made. You say, well, that works in Indonesia, but it doesn't work here. Oh, yes, it does. Well, in Indonesia, they have generations of uh, multiple wives and polygamy, so they could never accept this teaching. Oh, yes, they could. This is for every culture and every generation. I don't think our generation is much worse than the Corinthian one into which Paul is speaking. The activities of that city, if you look into them, we'll find were, were, were terrible. The cultural and sexual mores were abominable. Hard to say that that was better than today. I think it was worse. Secondly, the marital institution is to be monogamous. It's his idea, and he set it up. one man and one woman for the purposes of procreation and for the proper regulation of sexual impulses as well as the other things I just mentioned watch out the stove is hot, don't touch it, be warned don't don't have the experience of saying whoa I didn't see that coming nobody told me The seventh commandment, as I say in conclusion, that restricts the sexual act to the marriage relationship is based on the holiness of God and our responsibilities to him. The act itself is a kind of sanctuary sacred to the man and wife alone. Any other partner is an aberration and a desecration violating one of the foundational rules of human life and behavior, and it is offensive to the Lord. When I meet with young couples who are planning to be married, I tell them, the Bible doesn't say a lot about marriage. There are just a few things that, re- that it d- does to regulate it, and you need to pay attention to those. It doesn't say who's going to keep the checkbook. It doesn't say who's going to divide the labor in the home a certain way. It doesn't say where we're going for Christmas dinner. It lets you pick that and resolve it. Sometimes I wish it had resolved it but it gives us clear principles. Let me review them again one more time. Marriage is a gift by God. It's His idea. It's an institution that He chooses to regulate. It is to be between one man and one woman for the purposes of procreation and the blessings of life, spiritual, physical, and material. It is not to be entered into lightly except by the call of God, I've married some people who probably never were called by God to be married. I didn't know that. They may not have known it. But you must ask yourself if you're single, is God calling me to marriage? Or is it just my parents? Or my children? And then if you're single, wonderful. Wonderful. Your mom might not like it. Your dad might not like it. But God says it's just fine. In fact, you can probably accomplish more than if you were married. And he says, Come unto me, O ye that labor and are heavy laden. Listen to me, and I will give you rest. You break my heart when you run after other gods. You commit adultery against me by breaking the marriage covenant between God and his people because you chase after False gods, you want everything but me, it seems. Remember the faithfulness of the Son, who though he was tempted in all points as we are, all points, yet was without sin. His faithfulness did not include adultery. He turned away from it. Whatever opportunities he had, he did not even lust in his heart for a woman Mary Magdalene or any of the others, he kept himself for us pure before the Lord. Therefore, when he offered himself on the cross, he offered up a purity that we could not achieve, for we are all guilty of all ten commandments being broken. There isn't one of us here who hasn't in some way transgressed them all, but he transgressed none of them and therefore offered a righteous sacrifice on our behalf. So he knows what you're facing and what you're struggling with. He knows about temptation. He spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness with the devil without food or water. He knows how difficult these things are. He's acquainted with them. He didn't just sail through life. But he says, seek first me and my kingdom and these other things will be added to you. So let us rededicate ourselves, married and unmarried, to the leadership of the Lord and the biblical teaching about marriage, so that we might not break the seventh commandment. Let us pray. Lord, it's clear enough what you mean. You haven't stuttered or stumbled in any way. You've been perfectly clear to us in your word. There are certain things that are off-limits. There are certain things that, if we transgress them, will eat us alive, and this is one of them. It will ruin our lives. It will wreck our hearts. And even if nobody knows but you, the corrosive effect is terrible. Deliver us from pornography addiction. Deliver us from lustful looking, which we call just admiring another creature of beauty. Allow us to be done with excuses about how we act and think and teach us that we serve a holy God who says, be ye holy for I am holy and who calls us to live as the Son did in total dedication to him so that the hot stove might not burn us so that the destructions of our own decisions might be avoided. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were faithful unto death, that we might have a crown of life. Thank you now as we walk with you for our marriages and for our singleness. May you be glorified in both. In Jesus' name, amen.